How healthy is your brand? And how can you really know? Today, I'm diving deep into this topic of brand health and brand tracking with the one and only Jenny Romanyuk from the Ehrenberg Bass Institute. So buckle up and let's talk branding. Hey everyone. Hey Jenny, how are you? Yeah, good Steph. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I'm excited to have you back on the show. But for the people that haven't listened to that episode yet, could you quickly introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, Jenny Romanek. I'm a research professor and associate director international with the Ehrenberg Bass Institute. Love that. Well, um, we, we wanted to chat about your new book, which I really enjoyed should be somewhere up here behind us for the people watching the video but <laughs> uh, better brand health and i want to just dive straight into it i think like the number one question probably is like when would you say is a brand healthy what are some some signals there and and how do you define that concept of brand health yeah well when i talk about brand health in this context of the book i am talking mainly about the stuff in people's heads so, you know, there are some people who widen this definition to brand health to talk about financial metrics and all of that side of it. And yes, they're important in the holistic sense, but I'm talking about more um, what's commonly referred to as the brand health tracker um, and about that tracks the memories that people have, the thoughts and feelings that people have about brands in the category. And when you're talking about those, it's not so much about healthy and unhealthy it's about more of a jigsaw puzzle horses for courses where there might be some areas where you're doing well and some areas with room for improvement just like when you go to a doctor and you have a health checkup and they might say yep yeah um your height and weight is good but your cholesterol needs some work all right and get the remedy you go away you do that you come back and hopefully next time you go down you get measured, your cholesterol has been fixed, but maybe, you know, your feet are hurting because you think hmm. something else. And so, you know, all of those things can happen as you're dealing with a quite complex um, entity and trying to keep it on the right path it needs to be. Interesting. And, and what would you say the signals are for, like, uh, the symptoms of a healthy brand? Yeah. I think the key symptom of a health, of, well, I'm saying that rather than the symptoms of a healthy brand, I think the key things are the symptoms of an unhealthy mm. brand. Yeah. And the, the symptoms of a health, an unhealthy brand is it's either starting to be forgotten <coughs> or it's not being remembered for the right reasons. Mm. They seem to be the key um signals now sometimes that being forgotten can be amongst people who do have some semblance of memories um sometimes that being forgotten is a category level whereby new buyers are coming in and you're not building a presence among them so on a category level you are so there's there's two ways of being forgotten one is you know a person forgets you but there is a category forgetting when you just become less relevant as a brand in the category. Interesting. And like, I, I think what, what, what a lot of people think about when they hear brand tracking is, you know, the typical we're measuring awareness, 
whether that mm-hmm. be unaided or aided. But you're talking more about these 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 memory structures and and how people deal with them, and and especially in relationship to the category. And and maybe I think just to unpack it a bit, like brand tracking in in a nutshell. I know people need to read the book mm-hmm. to get the whole thing, but like, how does it look like, and and what are you trying to me- measure mm-hmm. exactly? Yeah, so I mean, at its heart, brand tracking is is said assessing the thoughts and feelings people have about brands within the category, with an idea of getting an indication of you've done all these marketing activities, and the aim has been to try and build the foundations that basically up the odds the brand will be successful next time it's someone is in a buying situation. Um, and we can never have certainty in that because remember, at the end of the day, people can choose not to buy anything, so every brand could be a failure. Um, so when we're talking about brand health, we want to make sure we're trying we're trying to get a window into the buyer mind to see how well we've done at what we've tried to do. Now, that means the onus is on us is first of all we have to be laying down the right memories. There's no point in having the best brand health tracker if you're laying down irrelevant memories or building irrelevant thoughts. Okay, so that's the first thing is you need the strategy to know well what what is going to help me next time help my brand next time someone's in a buying situation but then even if you have that right strategy and tactics in place um our memories are you know it's hard to get people's attention it's hard to get people actually things actually bear um, actually encoded into memory such that they come out so that's why and then you've got competitors who are doing ostensibly the same thing um, and so that battleground plays out in people's minds. And so when we do brand health tracking, we're just getting a sense of, well, let's have a look at the playing field, see how we're positioned, see what we're doing better on, um, and see where we might need to improve as we go forward. Um, and that is the challenge of brand health tracking, is that the only way we can get that information is to ask people because we can't magically see into people's brains. We can see the outcomes, we can see the behaviours that they do, but that actually doesn't tell us why they did it and doesn't tell us as if what we did helped facilitate them doing that. And so that's the purpose of the Brand Health Tracker, to assess the performance of past asset um, memory building activities with an eye on does this increase or improve our chances in the future. Mm. Like I think one of the the typical critiques or or things that you would get from people saying, well, we're doing this survey, people are at doing these self-reported things, is that maybe like a lot of there's a lot of science. Well, maybe you tell me if it's it's not proper science, but about brand branding mostly being an unconscious thing. So, mm-hmm. what's like, do you see that as a pitfall of asking people like how they feel or think about a brand when a lot of it is actually playing in the, let's say, subconscious or, or like what's your take on that? It depends. There are some times when a direct question is the best way to go. Um, mm. For example, I know there's lots of really fancy ways to measure emotional response. Mm-hmm. But quite frankly, if you put an ad in front of somebody and watch their face, you can actually tell pretty clearly if they've had an emotional reaction to it. They smile, for example. They might laugh. They might cry. 
they might just go, oh, you know, when I see a puppy on screens, oh, how cute is that? Yeah, there's usually some thing and you can ask them and say, hey, Steph, did you enjoy watching that? And you go, yeah, I really did. That was great. Or, yeah, left me cold. You know, mm. so there's, there's things, sometimes we can overcomplicate things. But then there's some things we can't ask directly. So I can ask you, hey, Steph, um, how, how is, um, is Coke going to be mentally available to you next time you're buying soft drinks? You'll be like, uh, possibly, I don't know, maybe. Because that is a, a different sort of a concept where we, we have to kind of measure the foundations of it to then derive an assessment of how mentally available Coke is in the long run. Um, because your answer right now is going to be influenced by the immediacy of what has happened to you recently. You know, if you just had a Coke literally before you came and talked to me, you might go, nah, actually, I wouldn't want another one. Um, or, you know, or if you hadn't had one for a while, you might, yeah, maybe. But all of that doesn't help Coca-Cola understand the long-run propensity for you to be, you to think of Coke. So sometimes we can ask directly, and that's the simplest route. Sometimes we have to be a bit, um, have to go to the foundations rather than the direct approach. And it really depends on the concept we're dealing with. But let's not overcomplicate things. Not everything has to be a very detailed read of someone's subconscious and implicit emotions. A lot of the stuff in psychology that's about you know, implicit measurement, etc., was working with ideas that we might want to bury and not reveal. So mm. things like racism, whereby um, you know we we don't necessarily, well, most of the time, people don't want to express racism. Uh, change a little bit now, but most of the time they don't. Um, and so unconscious methods can pick up, for example, micro facial expressions or changes in your tone of voice or heart rate or things like that, that reveal that you're suppressing something, you're not being fully open. But even then there's question marks about what are you suppressing um, and does it match up with what is your what they think you're suppressing because obviously you're suppressing it um, <laughs> and it's not so obvious to know exactly what it is um, so so that then becomes another layer of complexity in those sorts of measurements mm. yeah I mean I, I've seen a lot of uh, brand tracking reports from like different brands that what, what I've worked mm -hmm. with and some of them are like uh, very bloated and like there's I don't know a hundred questions about a lot of stuff and like as as a lot of people I do wonder sometimes like how much of this is really relevant and like do you have any any simple thoughts on on like what should we and what shouldn't we be looking for in in, in a brand tracking yeah and that's actually one of the reason why I wrote the book is because so my history is that I actually and um, when we first started as um, the Marketing Science Centre way, way, way back when, when I first joined, um, we did a lot of um, different projects with companies. And we, because we had less developed our own products, you know, things like distinctive assets, category entry points, we hadn't developed them yet um, in terms of the measurement approaches and things. And so we were often responding to briefs from companies and one of those was for brand health tracking. So I've actually managed a couple of different trackers. And yeah, there were questions there where I went, I have no idea why we're asking this. And I'd ask, 
know, quite politely because I, or quite carefully because I didn't want it to seem like I was an idiot and like everyone else would know why this was there. <laughs> and then you would discover that actually most of the time no one actually knew. Someone had put it in. No one wants to get rid of it in case someone else cared about it. And then you still generate reports and things from there and you end up with these really long, tedious reports that really hard to find anything useful. Um, a lot of duplication in there um, and a lot of things that are where people have just put in things that might have been fads or trends at the time or seem like nice idea where you just go, I don't actually know what that is. Um, for example, I was reading a report, a questionnaire where they measured the vividness of the brand in someone's mind <laughs> on a 10 point scale. <laughs> I mean, I have no idea. What, what does that actually mean? If it's not vivid, does that mean it's like uses pale colours? Or does it mean they don't know anything about it? I mean, it's the idea of a concept where you go, probably it made sense to somebody, but if you actually think about what do you do, how do you shift it? If you go up, do you celebrate? Or what if you go up in vividness because you've just had, like, you know, Qantas, I'm sure, might be quite vivid right now in people's minds. I'm not sure that's necessarily a good thing for them. Um, so, you know, so, so, so that's the thing. So we need to get rid of those. We need to think about the purpose for everything. And so when you actually strip it back to the core purpose, you actually don't need that long a tracker to get a good sense of the key elements of what's in people's mind. You don't need to measure it that often because at aggregate level particular, our brand memories don't change that much, which means that you know a lot of people are wasting a lot of money doing things they really don't need to do that not only are unhelpful, but they actually might be masking things that are actually um, really important. Mm. Yeah, one of the things that, that really stood out to me was, was this idea of, I think it's you described as measuring for the category, right? Mm -hmm. um, what, what, I, well, what I like about it is the fact that, as you say, like it makes it really a lot more about the, the customer and, and how they think yeah. and how they engage with, with the category. What's, what's I think a, a really inter interesting challenge is like defining what that category is. I think a lot of people struggle with that. And then you have the added layer on top of that, which is like a lot of challenger brands wanting to create their own category or, you mm -hmm. know, how, however we want to describe that, find that space. So, so like, what's the approach there to make sure you've properly defined the category, not too broad, not too small? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is a bit of a Goldilocks measure. And, you know, I mean, let's not let the perfect be the enemy of the good here. You're never going to get it perfectly right. But mm. there is, you can have ca ca categories that are too narrow that don't probably reflect the pull. So you can be too narrow in two things. The category definition. So, for example, if you were saying, well, I'm just going to do brand health tracking only on sports drinks. No, sports drinks drink, com, you know, compete with other sorts of drinks, and so you would be, you would be misrepresenting the comp competitive landscape in which you're dealing with, which would not be helpful for you, and also wouldn't be helpful because you're, ne you're then potentially um, missing opportunities that might be for a, a sports drink to expand into other adjacent areas because you're looking too narrowly at it. 
The other way people get too narrow in their category definition is their category definition of the buyer, where they go, you know, one time um, we did a study where they wanted, you know, it was there was like about three hurdles that someone had to go over to qualify for the survey. They had to mm. spend a certain amount, they had to shop in certain outlets, and I forgot what the third one was, to mm. be honest. Um, but you kind of go, is that really the proper category buyer? Um, but I'm sure that there are people who buy from the category that are not in there. And that then again, it, it doesn't help you. It, it gives you a very narrow lens. And it also invites your need to revise it because imagine if your strategy changed and you started focusing on different category buyers, you'd have to go, well, we have to get a whole new brand tracker because we've changed our target focus. So, you know, it's we, we have to be very, we have to be, more forward thinking than our current brand strategy. Because if our strategy is effective, for a small brand, we'll end up in a big brand. Now, if we have a tracker that's designed for our brand when it's small, hmm. if it's not fit for purpose when we're big, again, we have to change it. Um, and this is then, a, you know, it's basically a shooting ourselves in the foot because we reduce the continuity, but more importantly, we just don't get a realistic picture of what's going on in the marketplace and what's going on in people's minds. Because you can ignore it in your tracker, but buyers won't ignore it in their brain. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And I guess a lot of people are a bit like obsessed with this idea of niching and then maximizing yeah. that in their niche. And I think it's interesting and smart what you say about really thinking long-term and, and not too narrow. Well, one other thing I think that's... Uh, a challenge for a lot of people working at brands is the, the idea of category entry points. I think on a conceptual mm -hmm. level, most people understand it and see it. I think one of the tricky things is finding out which ones to track for and, and like even which mm -hmm. ones that are relevant. Like, I, I, do you have any ideas on how to make sure that you have those relevant entry points listed? Mm -hmm. Yeah, <coughs> so, I mean, you know, how many category entry points you track will be a little bit based on your budget, your questionnaire length and everything. So I think mm. they're important, but I understand that there are other things you might want to put into a tracker. But what you should include is, as a priority, all the ones that are commonly used in the category. Um, now, the thing to remember with category entry points, if you do them right, they're not, um, each individual is not its own purchase occasion. What happens in the real world is they get combined, they get put together into different sort of contexts um, to then um, play out into what's the set that's evoked at that point in time. But you want to know which are the ones that are more likely to come up. Um, and so, you know, if you take, say, the top 12 in a category, just based on how commonly they're encountered, that's a good start. Now, there might be some that are less common, but you know they are going to be growing in the future, or you, you've got a good bet they're going to be growing in the future. Uh, there's going to be some that are less common that you know are not going to grow in the future. So, you know, something like, for example, if it's something to celebrate a birthday, you know there's only so many birthdays people have. We're not going to suddenly make up more. Whatever we've got now in terms of how common that comes up, that's pretty much going to be it. So, you know, might not be a priority one to track. doesn't mean it's not important. It's just not one that you track. But if there's something like, you know, um, thinking about different trends, 
Oh, I'm trying to think of something right now that would be relevant. But, I mean, probably a short while ago, um, it's probably not as relevant now, we've seen it taper off a bit, but the de- desire for plant-based um, meat-free mm. meals. So it, would, it started quite low incidence, but, you know, sort of grew up a bit. Um, it's actually interesting that it's tapered off now, so some people are putting bets on that kind of accelerating, but it really doesn't seem to have as much. Um, but that's an example of one that you might have gone, well, maybe we'll put that in, so even if it's low incidence now, it may grow into the future. Um, and how you put it in, there are some you put in where you do a full-scale mapping against brands, but there's some you might just put in just to track their incidence to keep an eye on, is, is it actually continuing to grow? Um, because we know for the common ones, um, they're actually pretty stable over time. Even during COVID, we didn't see big changes in category entry points. We saw some changes in ones that were directly linked to the restrictions that people faced. So mm. if you were in a country whereby you weren't allowed to, um, you know, you were locked down in your houses and you couldn't go visit other people, Category entry points about socialising with others obviously decreased because no one could mm. do them. So, so it's, it's about being pragmatic about it. Now, within those top ones should be hopefully the ones that you're focusing on as a brand because if your attention is to low-incidence category entry points that aren't one of the ones that are going to be growing in the future, um, I'd suggest you've got bigger problems than what category entry points to put in your tracker because that might suggest you're focusing on less beneficial areas of the market. Hmm. Yeah, maybe just one more question on that. Like, the, what, what inspires the category entry points? I mean, do you actually go ask customers, like, the when, the, how, the why, the how, the what? Or is it like, because it almost sounds like there is a list available for every category, but we know in reality that's not the case. Like, how do you go out, find out which ones to, to do? Yeah, no, you can ask people. And, you know, there kind of is a list available for every category because they're category entry points. They're not brand specific. Mm. Um, now, there's not some magic list that I can go, here you are, here is this <laughs> Sort of stuff, um, but yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, well, maybe in like ten years' time, we might actually have a, a comprehensive list of that. Sorry, I've got a dog here that's demanding um, <laughs> attention. So we, our first, uh, I, I think the gold standard is you ask consumers. Now, in some markets, that's uh, or for some brands, that's not feasible either due to cost or availability of the category buyer. So, for example, in B two B, it can be challenging to find it. So, in which case, in the book, I do detail some other tactics you can use. So, you mm. can use past reports. You can do internal brainstorming. Um, you can review advertising. And I do recommend, if you're going to do it, two things. One is do, if you're not going to ask consumers, do multi-method where possible. So don't just rely on one method because every method outside of consumers has its weaknesses. Um, and so you don't, you want them to ideally compensate for each other. And the other thing is I would use the W's framework to remove any internal biases because we all have them whereby there are certain, you know, some people like the emotions, some people like the situation, some people like the motives. You know, we all have our areas where we might have done research in the past, we're more familiar with, we're more comfortable with. And you need to separate those when you're coming up with a 
category level list of category entry points. Um, yeah. So that's the sort of thing. But yeah, um, we're, it's possible to come up with a list um, and then you can do some tests to check to see um, whether or not um, they are sort of unique in that they're not duplicating each other. Mm. Yep, makes sense. Like, let's say we, we've done our, our research properly, we've defined the category, we've set the list of competitors, we have a mm -hmm. proper set of questions and, and we the data has come in. Like, what's the first thing to like watch out for? Like, what are the big things to, to look at? And, and like, what is the outcomes we're looking for in that, in that mm -hmm. scenario? Yeah, well, one of the most important parts of a tracker, and it's essentially the backbone of any brand health tracker, is the um, the brand and category buying situation um, questions. So you really want to make sure that they, first of all, are designed right, but then secondly, I would check them and have a look at them and do some simple tests. Is it following the double jeopardy pattern where big brands have higher penetration and higher um, frequency of buying or probability of buying depending on what sort of category you're dealing with. So, you know, do some simple tests on that to check to see. Um, you can do some simple tests on um, brand perceptions where you can check to see big brands should score more than small brands. There's a whole heap of normative patterns we know that happen with um, brand health data that when you know them are really powerful. So when I get data from other people that someone else has commissioned and collected, I run those tests to check the data and just see um, how normal it is or how weird it is. And then if it's weird, I can find out, and you know, was there something in how it was collected, et cetera, that might lead to abnormal patterns. And the implication of that, does this mean the data's usable or not? So that's yeah. always, I would always do, a, I, I call it the get to know your data part of the relationship. When you get data in, uh, just double checking that the things make sense and the patterns look like they should. Um, and then once you've got that, then there is, you know, the very simple analyses. I mean, what I'm trying to do is, is to make it simple for people to do this. It doesn't have to be complicated. If you've got some basic you know, ability to do analysis in um, Excel or, you know, a, a, a relatively simple analysis program, you can do most of the, you can get out the, the metrics I'm proposing because they're actually not that complicated to do. Mm. Yeah, and I guess, like, one of the pitfalls is, like, given the recent debate on differentiation versus distinctiveness uh, I, I guess one of the pitfalls is that a lot of people in these in these trackers are kind of looking for signals that they are unique and and like highly perceived as being different like what would your 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 take be there in the sense of like what mindset do you go into reading these 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 results and what should you be careful for Okay. Well, I don't actually cover it in the book because um, in my experience, um, differentiation actually plays a very little role in most brand trackers. <laughs> so people talk about wanting to differentiate the brand, but when it comes down to it, when you look at when they're reporting on brand health trackers, it's usually not front and center in there. And, you know, it's, and that's the problem I have with this whole um, uh, people who are proponents of differentiation is their measurement techniques are pretty 
Uh, they're just pretty slippery. So currently, you know, I mean, the, it's proposed that you measure it by just asking people directly, um, you know, w w does the brand offer something different to other brands? Which brands offer something different to other brands? You can put that in if you want, um, and you can assess that performance. Um, and um, you'll see that people, not many people will tick it. You know, um, when you look at users, a lot of them use a brand and don't ticket um, and I'm not really sure how it grows so I'm not really sure how you grow it um, so I don't I don't know hmm. how you interpret that so I actually didn't include it in the book because I don't know how you interpret this and I don't know how you use it and I'd rather use metrics that I know why they move and what to do when they move and also sometimes what to do when they when you thought they were going to move but they didn't so you were trying to build something, but it didn't change, then you need to know why, what are the likely causes of failure in that effort so that I can then fix it so I don't repeat it. Mm. Um, so yeah, so it actually didn't come in a lot. Um, you know, I mean, whenever we've measured uniqueness, looking at individual associations um, and how many people just hold one association about a brand, hardly anyone does that. <laughs> Typically what happens is people either don't have any links to an attribute or they have lots of brands linked to that attribute. And that fits in line with what we know with memory theory. The more you use something, the more associations you have with it and you naturally build up a repertoire of it. Um, it's very rare that you go, right, well, that's my one brand for that and I'm not going to pay attention to anything else. Um, yeah, so, so that's one thing. Um, other forms of differentiation are things like correspondence analysis, perceptual maps which are, you know, they, they, them you can't do in Excel. You have to use the statistical package for that. They were very popular in the 90s. There was a big trend towards perceptual mapping everything. Um, and you use the distance. Um, I've used that measurement approach. Haven't found anything particularly useful there either. Hmm. So, you know, so when, when the people who are proposing differentiation come up with a good way and useful way of measuring that actually tells you why you're differentiated and, and how it would change, and okay, you can put it in if you want. Just don't think it's that important. I wouldn't waste the money on it personally. <laughs> change your mind when it happens. All right. Um, <clears throat> that's interesting. I think one of the things that a lot of smaller brands obviously struggle with is knowing when to start tracking mm -hmm. and of course i mean that's maybe a hard question to ask but like how much will it cost us and shouldn't we just stick to all of this digital metrics we have available mm -hmm. for free quote unquote like what what's your take there when is when is it relevant or interesting for a smaller brand to start tracking well first of all anything that's good won't be free um, but I will say we did look at online metrics to see the degree to which they could replace different parts of the tracker, and they can't. Um, it's just not a very complete picture of the world. So, um, and sometimes getting a biased picture is worse than getting no picture at all. Mm. But I will say I think a lot of money is wasted often on tracking. Um, and if you're a small brand, it's remember... You're not tracking, your tracking isn't about your brand, it's about the consumer. And the consumers, the category buyers will be there if you're a small brand, if you're a big brand. So that's not really about, well, we'll get to a certain size and then we'll start tracking. 
It's actually, if you can, you should start as soon as you enter the category. Now, I understand the feasibility when people go, we don't have the budget, then how are we supposed to do that? So then the question is, what are the most useful metrics for you when you're a small brand starting out and how can you get that information? So if we look at brand awareness, then the prompted brand awareness of non-buyers is actually quite a useful metric because that tells you how many category buyers you've at least entered their brain. And that's a simple question that you can get with one question. So you could do it on an omnibus somewhere to tag it on to someone. You know, there are lots of companies who offer omnibus where you can just buy a question and get the results for that. We actually mm. need to, because you'd need to track, uh, do they buy the brand or not? And do they know, well, do they know the brand exists or not? And do they buy the brand or not? And then you just do a cross tab to see your non-users, what proportion of them actually know your brand exists. You know, so you can start there and you might add a double check on, you know, do people, um, is there any, re any barrier in terms of rejection? And you might just do a quick assessment on that. And if your rejection level is low and normal, like most brands are, you then would not worry about that again because you go, well, I've checked, I've checked to see there's no barrier. And then on the mental availability side, um, then it's about the category entry points. And if you don't have much money, you might go, well, I'm going to focus on, say, you know, three, four category entry points. I just want to assess how our brand's growing with that. And so you just design a little bit that allows you that. So, you know, again, let's not make the perfect be the enemy of the good. And let's think about what's the most useful thing for you right now. And if you're a very small brand starting out, knowing how many category buyers you've got at least a presence in their brain is a good start. And then knowing if that is a useful presence in their brain, as in it's something that's related to the category, then, um, then that's a second um, step after that. Yeah. What what I like about what you said about is like really starting earlier and and like yeah scaling it up as you get more resources is maybe also I'm wondering if it's interesting. Let's say you're a super small brand, but you do this and basically the awareness and everything is zero or, or something around mm -hmm. that uh, thing. Is there still like insightful stuff you can learn okay. from seeing what competitors and like what would you be looking mm -hmm. at just to understand the category better mm -hmm. well we detail the fact that you can do an entire what we call laws of growth analysis if you've got good brand and category things and that can give you insight into just basically market structure where brands are how they compete um, which will give you insight to who to pay attention to and who not to, um, well, less to, um, in terms of growth and decline, etc. So that's that's the one thing that you can do immediately from that. Um, and even dispelling some of the myths that people have about growth by doing a laws of growth analysis can be extremely valuable um, because it just allows... I mean, we have, we've had companies, bigger companies, do... Um, studies particularly in category entry points before they've launched a brand into a category to understand what are the sorts of messages that are going to be useful to start out with um, and how do you set the brand up for success rather than waiting until they're in there so really if you're a small brand not attached to a big company it's just a resource issue rather than a value issue in terms of the research um, you can also understand as it, if you get a sense of where um, other people are. Now, I will say, 
And this is actually something I think that's really important. So when we, in the book, I talk about mental advantages, which are essentially what um, people often talk about in terms of brand positioning, when a brand is known for something more than they should. Um, the thing about it is with mental advantages is they're temporary gains once you're, unless they're functional, like they're things that you do that is different um, in terms of product offerings. Um, they're temporary gains through advertising that will dissipate as soon as you stop advertising. They don't drop off immediately, but they do. So they're actually a reflection that the message of your communication and your branding has successfully permeated people's brains, particularly non-buyers, because they're the ones that grow with that. So if you can get a sense of where other brands have successfully got those mental advantages, then you can kind of navigate sometimes and get something that is common, but maybe not as competitive, that might be a nice starting point in terms of your messaging. It's not always possible, but given that most, a lot of brands have been focusing on um, sort of non-category entry point areas, there are some markets where there's a lot of opportunity to be, to be had. So if we take the banking market, for example, you know, most banking ads are about interest rates and reward points and things like that. Very little of it's actually about the category buyer and what's going on in their lives and why they might need, um, you know, need money or have excess money that they want to build um, for them. So you know, there's often a lot of opportunity in that sort of category to identify things that are common to a lot of category buyers, but no brands have a mental advantage on because no one's been communicating it out there. Mm. <clears throat> like we have this, I think this is the, the cert, well, the brand tracking, you can get a lot from it, as you said, even if you're small. I'm wondering like the, let's say the optimal or perfect uh, brand dashboard, like, are there other things we need to be looking at, like there's share of surge that came up a lot more in the last years. There's obviously share of voice, which is more of a traditional metric on, on how much you spend versus your competitors. Like, how does it look like for you to bring it all together and to really understand how your brand is performing? Or is it just the brand tracking is the, the one thing what you need to work on? Yeah. I mean, one of the things to interpret brand tracking data well, you do need to keep a good record of what you've done. Um, and that often is quite difficult. If you ask people, can you just get me all the creative from the marketing activity you've done in the last year? They go, oh, yeah, okay. Uh, I hope they haven't changed agencies because if they have this, um, yeah. Um, would say screwed, um, but yeah, um, that, 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 the thing that's so. So that's the thing is so um, to to properly understand what you're doing in brand health tracking, you do actually have to understand what did we put out there that we were hoping would change people's brains. Now, I have an issue with things like share of voice, share of search. Well, share of voice is just a reflection of how much you're spending relative to competitors. Mm -hmm. um, Okay, that's maybe useful for me. It's one of the useful budgeting tools to be able to say, you know, this is how much we want. But reality is, unless it's quality spending, it doesn't matter how much you spend. So, and this is the share of search. I'm also a bit like, I don't know what that means, particularly for the vast majority of categories that no one searches for. Um, you know, share of search for toothpaste. I'm not sure how you put that in action because I don't know many people that 
thing. It's the same with people have asked me about category entry points online. Can we get that? Um, the reality is it's going to be skewed to things that are unusual, shareable and difficult because that's mm. what we put online. When I brush my teeth in the morning, I don't feel the urge to post that experience to people. So that's going to be underrepresented in the toothpaste world out there. So that's where we have to be careful about. So, so we need better documentation of what we do, and that will help understand what of what we do works. Um, but I, 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 even within the sort of relatively short list of metrics that I put forward, not all of them are relevant to all brands all the time. You know, there are better metrics within the mental availability suite. There are, so we have sort of mental market share that's relevant to everybody. That is like a sales market share, but for memories. Um, we have network size, which is of those that have the brand in their brain, how many category entry points they have. That's relevant for all brands. But then we have this thing called mental penetration, which is the proportion of people who have only one category, at least one category entry point linked to the brand in their brains. That's more relevant for smaller brands, because you know, that's the starting point, is usually you start with one, you get into one category entry point for yeah. a person, and then you're in that race, and then you, you know, might get actually bought and then they might go, oh, and then you've just built that memory and that it can accelerate from there. And then we have share of mind, which is of those that have the brand in their brain, what share does your brand have versus competitors? And that's more relevant to big brands because usually when they're in decline, it's because a lot of little competitors have been eating away at the people that have the big brand in there and just reducing their probability it might just be expanding the competitive set size for them enough that they you know, just reduce their chances of being bought. And it's a slow erosion, but you can see it there. Mm. So that means that you know, if you're a, a small brand, there's three of those metrics that's relevant. If you're a big brand, there's three of those metrics that are, metrics that are relevant. They're not the same three metrics. And that's where we've got to get a little bit smarter to understand how context and the brand we're dealing with influences what metrics are going to be most relevant. Yeah, <clears throat> really interesting. Uh, like one final question, then we'll wrap it up. Um, like, let's say I'm I'm a brand marketer at a company. A lot of people listening are are, are this type of person. Like, and you want to convince the stakeholders in your company that hey guys, this is really something we should do. Like in a in a few sentences, what would be like your way of of like saying that this has value and this is important for us? If we do it right, and I've got that and things, because not all brand tracking is helpful, um, it's the really the only way we get a view into our performance into the buyer brain, and that's where all the action is happening. Because we need to see how we've performed relative to competitors. And there's no other information technique that gives us that. Um, yeah, I just think it's, this is why I wrote the book is because my worry was people were giving up on it because mm -hmm. they were expensive, long-winded, bloated instruments. And without it, we'll never know why things happen. We'll only see what, we'll, we'll see what we do, we'll see what happened, but that bit in the middle that links them together is just going to be really hard to disentangle. 
Mm. So to me, it's just a really vital importance, a vital part of understanding our place in the world and if we've laid those right foundations. Yeah, love that. Maybe one small technical thing. Like if a person wants to start brand tracking, would you recommend them going to like a research agency or, or intermediate? Or would you say like just uh, go take buy the book and take everything from it and, and go to a survey uh, kind mm. of like platform? It depends on how hands-on you want to be. We've talked mm. to a couple of survey platforms that are taking the foundations of the books and building it into the tracking that they're offering. So that's yeah. excellent because that does make it more widely accessible. Um, but, you know, I've actually put on my website, there is a word questionnaire that you can download in terms of a template to get you started. So my recommendation would be start filling it out yourself, use the book, use the questionnaire, fill it out. Then you can decide, do you feel confident? Do you have the capabilities to do it yourself? Or do you want to partner with an agency that can then, you can go, well, here's my starting point questionnaire, um, you know, that can then help you in that journey, but you've already set the parameters of what you want. And if they do want to introduce other measures, you can ask smart questions about, okay, so what is this getting me? Why am I tracking this? How does this fit with this? What's the you know, sort of stuff? Um, and that can hopefully avoid you taking something that's you know relatively short and efficient and turning it into one of those big bloated instruments. Yeah. Um, so that's that's what I would recommend is have a go yourself first of all at designing it, and then you know get in ex get in support or agencies for whatever you need because there's there's different layers now. You can actually just commission a data co a, a panel provider, so you can give them that word questionnaire. They will program it. They will collect your sample for you and send you back. A data file mm -hmm. or you can have an agency intermediary that will then take that data produce a report for you and then out and I've been really pleased the number of people who have been embracing the principles and integrating it into the products that they offer there in terms of agencies to their clients so you know if you ask around you might find someone um, like a like-minded partner that you can work with if you don't feel you've got the confidence to do it yourself but I've tried to make sure that all the analyses are things that you don't need a statistics degree to assess. Mm. They're actually pretty simple and straightforward. Yeah, love that. Um, just a final question, like any interesting stuff coming up at Ehrenberg Bass, uh, any books you're working on, mm -hmm. any research uh, you would love to share? Well, we just, um, we, I, we posted a lot about earlier in the year, we did uh, Mental and Physical Availability Summit, so there's actually a fair bit coming out about that, um, slowly dribbling out, well, it's, it goes to our corporate sponsors first and then mm, sharing with the world. We actually, on Friday, did a reprise in Adelaide um, for our alumni and our future students, which was a lot of fun. It was just nice to get the whole gang back together to do that. Um, so yeah, so there's some really different fun stuff coming out about that in different areas, everything from portfolio cohesion to channel management to co-advertising when you advertise with multiple brands. Um, yeah, so there's a whole heap of stuff coming out there. But um, yeah, yeah, yes. And um, I'm, I'm because I just finished this book, I'm, I'm sort of in between books now, but looking at next year, but I don't want to say too much yet until I <laughs> finally settle on what it is I'm going to be writing next. Um, that's, that's 2024 Jenny's um, issue to solve. 
2023, Jenny is like, yeah, I'm taking a break. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing all that golden stuff with us. We learned with you. Um, so uh, thanks for being on the podcast, Jenny. Oh, it's a pleasure. All right. That was it for this episode. As always, I really appreciate you listening or watching the show. If you like it, please um, subscribe to the podcast on YouTube or wherever you're listening. If you're interested in learning more about brand strategy, visit branding.courses and you can use the code LTB podcast to get a 20% discount. Also, if you want to see the transcript for this episode, you can visit letstalkbranding.substack.com and also subscribe to the email list there to get updated on any new shows or other content. Thanks, take care and see you in the next episode.